0: Let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter uh, 12. We're doing a verse by verse study through the book of Revelation. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 12, uh, verse 1. And my goal this morning is to look at Revelation 12, verses 1 through uh, 17. And the title of the message this morning is The Raging War of Centuries, The Raging War of uh, Centuries. This is an amazing chapter that we'll be looking at uh, today. Uh, when our four kids, my wife and I have four children, and when they're all home, we're empty nesters now, but when our four children were younger and living in our home, someone here at Cornerstone gave to us an audio CD of the book of Revelation being read. Um, And it was being read with musical accompaniment provided by the London Symphony Orchestra. And as you can imagine, the professional reader who was reading the text of Revelation was reading it in a dramatic fashion, and the epic-sounding musical score made their reading all the more dramatic. After receiving the CD, my wife and I uh, started playing it uh, during the evenings at home so that we could listen to it as a family together with our children. And my wife and I uh, and most of our children loved the audio CD, but we noticed that one of our children would disappear from the room whenever we put that CD in. And after noticing that pattern, we pursued that child as they fled into another room of the house and discovered from them that the reading of the book of Revelation terrified them. And we learned that Revelation chapter 12 was one of the chapters that scared them the most. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, In our chapter Today, uh, we're going to be reading about a great red dragon that is waiting to devour a pregnant woman's child when it is born. And when the dragon fails at that, he chases the woman into the wilderness and tries to drown her with a flood of water coming out of his mouth. The Lord of the Rings... And Chronicles of Narnia have nothing on this chapter. Last week we saw the seventh trumpet of judgment blow. This is the final trumpet that we have learned finishes the mystery of God and brings history to its climax. In the final verses of Revelation chapter 11, we're given a glimpse of how Heaven responds to this blowing of the seventh trumpet, and in the final verse of chapter 11, we see a terrible storm exploding forth upon the earth, and so we turn the page, as it were, into Revelation chapter 12, expecting to read more about the impact or the fallout of this seventh trumpet upon the earth, but that is not what we find Instead, we find God giving to the Apostle John a vision of the larger struggle between God and Satan so that John and we can have a context for understanding the mystery of God that this seventh trumpet is going to finish. What is narrated for us in Revelation 12 involves great signs in the heavens and description of the war that rages on two battlefields, the battlefield of earth and even the battlefield of heaven. Our passage today should remind all of us that when we were born onto this earth, we were born on a battlefield where a war has been raging long before we arrived, This war started when Lucifer, the angel, became jealous of God's glory and resolved to be like the Most High. And in response, God cast him out of heaven, and ever since, Satan has been at war with God. As early as Genesis chapter 3, we see Satan showing up as a serpent in the Garden of Eden where he is slandering God and got Eve and Adam to eat of the forbidden fruit but we know that God graciously provided atonement for Adam and Eve and he made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that one day a seed would arise from Eve who would crush the head of the serpent and throughout history Thereafter, God preserved a lineage alive that led to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12 and in other passages, God promised Abraham that he would bring blessing to all the nations of the earth through Abraham and his seed. In his old age, Abraham, together with his wife Sarah, had a son named Isaac. From Isaac came Jacob, to get my facts right, and from Jacob came what? The 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 tribes became a great nation whom God delivered from the land of Egypt and brought into the land of promise. And throughout Israel's history, throughout the Old Testament, we see God promising again and again that from Israel will come forth the Messiah of the world. And this sets the stage for where John is going to pick up and describing for us in chapter 12 here this war that is waged between Satan and God's Messiah who comes forth from Israel. The way we're going to break down our study of this passage this morning is we're going to observe five developments ...in the war that rages between Satan and God's Messiah. Five developments in the war that rages between Satan and God's Messiah. And the first of these developments is, number one, that Satan tries to devour the Messiah when Israel brings him forth. Satan tries to devour the Messiah when Israel brings him forth. Observe what John says happens in verse 1. John says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Notice that this chapter begins in verse 1 by saying a great sign appeared in heaven. You might want to underline that word sign. This word translated sign speaks of a symbol that represents something else. So when John then begins to describe a woman clothed with the sun in verse 1, we know that he's not talking about a literal woman. We know that this woman serves as a symbol for something else. John describes what he sees here as a great sign, meaning that this sign looms very large in his vision and is very important. As for the woman that he sees, John describes her as a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. The language here takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 37 verse 9 where you will recall that Joseph had a dream and he told his brothers about this dream that he had, a dream in which the sun and the moon and 11 stars representing his brothers were bowing down to him. So we've got the sun and the moon and the stars and the fact here in revelation 12 that the woman in John's vision is featured with the sun and the moon and the seven or 12 stars makes it rather easy for us to conclude that this woman represents the nation of Israel which is composed of how many tribes 12 tribes This fits with the fact that Israel is often in the Old Testament depicted as a woman, in fact, as the wife of Jehovah uh, throughout the many books of our New Testament. In verse 2, John tells us that this woman is in labor. She's about to give birth, which may speak of the pains that Israel endured throughout her history, especially in the centuries leading up to the birth of the Messiah. John continues in verse 3, says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. Again, the fact that John describes this dragon as another sign alerts us to the fact that the dragon he sees is not a literal dragon, but that this dragon symbolizes something else. In verse 9, John will tell us specifically that this dragon is the devil, so that we will be in no doubt as to who he's talking about. But for now, John describes the sign that he sees as a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, or crowns. We may get some help in discerning what the seven heads and the ten horns represent in the next chapter of Revelation, but for now, we know that horns in Scripture represent power, right? We also know that diadems represent royal authority. The fact that this dragon has ten horns and seven heads with seven diadems probably indicates that this dragon is trying to attain to a totality of power that belongs to God alone. Satan, we know, is hungry for power, yet his greed for godlike power has turned him into a hideous creature that John sees here as a great red dragon. Such beautiful crowns on the heads of such an ugly dragon. Would you want these crowns? for yourself if acquiring them turned you into a dragon? This is what has happened to Satan. He is a dragon, John says, which shows that he is vicious and scary. He is red, which represents him as a bloodthirsty killer. And he is great, meaning that he is very powerful. Describing this dragon, John continues in verse four, And says, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. The statement likely is teaching us that when Lucifer or Satan rebelled against God at his initial rebellion and was cast out of heaven, a third of the angels joined him in this original rebellion and those third of the angels were cast from heaven To together with Satan. And these fallen angels are what we call demons. As for what this dragon is doing at this moment, John continues in verse 4 and says, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Satan knew. He read his Bible. He knew that The Messiah would be born through the people of Israel. He remembered God's promise to crush his head through this Messiah who would come forth from Israel. So he stood ready to devour this Messiah as soon as he was born. Better to deal with him when he is an infant than to have to do battle with him when he is full grown, right? Well, observe what John says in verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. We know from Matthew's gospel that once Jesus was born, Satan inspired Herod to have the baby Jesus found so that he could kill him. When Herod realized that he had been tricked by the Magi, he sent his soldiers to kill every Jewish boy in Bethlehem two years and younger. Herod's actions were inspired by this great red dragon who wanted to devour the Messiah before he could grow up. John tells us here in verse 5 that Israel, this woman, gave birth to a son a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This language tells us clearly that this child being born is the promised Messiah, the one who is not simply destined to rule over Israel, but to rule all of the nations on earth. And he is to rule them with a rod of what? A rod of iron that is unyielding and irresistible. John literally condenses the story of Christ's perfect life, his birth, perfect life, death and resurrection pretty dramatically here. But Christ's death and resurrection are implied. It turns out that the great red dragon succeeded in killing Christ upon a cross, but we know from Scripture that God raised Jesus from the dead and then ascended him to heaven, or as John says... Here in verse 5, that he, Jesus, this child, was caught up to God and to his throne. Where Jesus now sits at the right hand of God. Being caught up to God and to his throne, Jesus is now, as it were, out of the dragon's reach. There's no way the dragon can devour him now. But what happens next? This brings us to the second development in this war that rages between Satan and God's Messiah. Number two, Israel, represented by the woman, flees to the wilderness to be nourished by God for 1,260 days. Israel flees to the wilderness to be nourished by God for 1,260 days. At some point after this ruler Born of this woman is caught up to God and to his throne. John says in verse 6, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now in verse 5, we saw a gap between Christ's birth and his ascension. Here in verse 6, we see a very large gap between Christ's ascension and the midpoint of the tribulation period that is still to come, which is the very moment in history where John finds himself right now with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, where Israel is fleeing into the wilderness to be protected from Satan and nourished by God for 1,260 days. Now, you will recall that back in Revelation chapter 11, verse 2 we learn that Jerusalem right now is given over to the nations in the chronology of the book of revelation who we learn will tread these nations will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months that's what's where we are as we track through the book of revelation in verse 2 of chapter 11 we're told they will tread underfoot the holy city for how many months 42 months. How many days is 42 months? 42 times 30 equals 1,260 days that John is speaking about here in verse 6. The fact that Jerusalem is being trampled by the nations during this time period would explain why Israel needs to flee to the wilderness for safety. Beyond what's revealed in Revelation 11, we can, be, we can very comfortably infer something else. In chapter 11, we learn that the Antichrist has made war against the two witnesses and left their bodies to rot in the streets, and it's likely in the flush of that victory that the Antichrist goes into the temple, declares himself to be God and sets up some image of himself in the Holy of Holies, which Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. And Jesus himself speaks to the Jews in Matthew 24. Write this reference down, Matthew 24, 15 and 16, when he says, When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That's the time to get out of Jerusalem and Judea and flee to the mountains. That's in Matthew 24. Here in Revelation twelve six, John speaks of this woman who represents Israel and says in verse 6, Then the woman fled. Into the wilderness, just as Jesus instructs in Matthew 24, where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nursed for 1,260 days. There are many places to hide in the wilderness mountains of Israel. Just ask David, who successfully hid from King Saul and his men for many months, if not years, This is why they are still discovering Dead Sea Scrolls that have been lying concealed for 2,000 years. And hiding in this wilderness is what many Israelites will do during this time period that we know of as the second half of this tribulation period that is still to come. According to this vision that John is seeing here, this woman who represents Israel will find a place to hide that has been prepared for her by God And there she will be nourished and sustained for the entire period of 1,260 days, which will come to an end at the second coming of Christ. At this point, the first scene of this chapter closes, and we're left to wonder what is going to become of this woman who's hiding in the wilderness for three and a half years. John will come back to her. But in verse 7, John's attention is directed towards a war that breaks out in heaven. And this leads us to the third event that happens in this great conflict that rages between Satan and God's Messiah. Number three, Satan and his angels wage war with Michael and his angels in heaven. Satan and his angels wage war with Michael and his angels in heaven. Observe what John says beginning in verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they, speaking of the dragon and his angels, were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. I would agree with those commentators who say that these verses are not describing the original overthrow of Satan from heaven, but that these verses are talking about a specific battle that is still to take place in the future from our vantage point. In fact, it's a battle that will take place right at the midpoint of the tribulation period. A battle that will be in heaven, that Satan will be engaged in. And you might read these verses and be thinking, how can Satan and Michael, the angel, be fighting in heaven? Can Satan even enter heaven at the present time? Seems a little odd to us, but the answer is yes. Right now, there is a sense in which Satan can enter heaven. All you have to do is read Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, and see Satan among the angelic beings that are presenting themselves before God in heaven. And what do we see Satan doing when he presents himself before God in Job 1 and 2? We see him accusing Job in God's very presence. So from Job 1 and 2, we know that Satan can appear before God in heaven, even in this very chapter in verse 10 we read that Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. So evidently, there is some level of access that Satan has to God in heaven, even now, where he has some kind of forum to accuse the brethren. And here in verse 7, we observe that a time is coming around the midpoint of the tribulation period when Satan and his angels will appear before God in heaven and Satan will take this moment to attempt a coup. And this should not surprise us. After all, the Antichrist has just waged war against God's two seemingly indestructible witnesses. And he overcame them. And then the Antichrist goes into the temple and declares himself to be God. Perhaps Satan is right now thinking that this is his time to do in heaven what the Antichrist has done on earth. Whatever he is thinking, Satan and his fallen angels appear before God on this occasion and a war breaks out. And the result, according to verse 7, is that there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. I have no clue uh, what angels fighting with each other would even look like. But this is a real war that is fought with very high stakes. There's a few things we ought to think about the moment we see the name Michael showing up in this passage. First of all, Jude 9 Jude chapter 1 verse 9 tells us that Michael is an archangel. So he's one of the big dogs of heaven and he's not someone to mess with. Secondly, the name Michael literally means who is like God. I love that name. Who is like God, which stands in direct contrast to Lucifer's aim to be like the Most High. We see that in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 14 before he is overthrown by God, Michael and Lucifer are in every way the complete opposite of one another. Michael says, Who is like God? There's no one like him. Lucifer, I will be like him. Thirdly, a third thing we ought to think about when we see Michael's name mentioned is we ought to realize that this war has something to do with Israel. As soon as you see the name Michael, you ought to conclude that this battle has something to do with Israel. In fact, in Daniel chapter 12, in verse 1, God speaks to Daniel of this very moment, this very battle and says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, that's the people of Israel, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. From this passage, it's evident that Michael's special Duty is to be a protector of Israel, and coming back now to Revelation 12, it is he who will arise in this moment and defend them. Perhaps Satan is picking a fight with Michael right now so that he can defeat Michael and then have a free run at Israel now that their guardian is removed. Either way, we're told here in Revelation 12 that Michael and his angels are going to win this battle. So however scary and powerful the great red dragon is, he's no match for Michael. So imagine how strong Michael is as an angel of God. Speaking of the dragon and his angels, John says in verse 8, they were not strong enough. I love that. They were strong, but they were not strong enough for Michael and his angels. And with utter finality, the end of verse 8 says There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. This occasion, at this moment, is the last occasion in which Satan will be able to present himself before God in heaven. Never again will he be able to do this. In fact, observe what John says in verse 9: And the great red, or and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. John very much wants us to know that when he talks to us about a great red dragon, he's not just telling us a fictional story. This dragon is a symbol of a real person, and that person is, John says, the serpent Of old, who showed up in the Garden of Eden to deceive Eve. John also wants us to know that he is the one who is called the devil, which means accuser or slanderer. And he wants us to know that this is the one who is called Satan, which means adversary. Satan is God's adversary in every way, and he's ours too. John also wants us to know that this is the one who deceives the whole world. He's a deceiver and a successful one at that. And in this verse, John tells us that this Satan was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. They weren't just pushed. They weren't just dropped. They were hurled to earth. This is an epic moment, one that is worthy of heavenly commemoration, which brings us to the fourth development in this epic war that rages between Satan and God's Messiah. Number four, a heavenly voice commemorates Satan's defeat. A heavenly voice commemorates Satan's defeat. Observe what John says in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Now we're not told who the speaker or speakers are here. But whoever they are, they speak with one Unified, loud voice. And whoever they are, they speak about the saints as our brethren. Which means that those who are speaking here with one voice clearly are glorified saints. As for what they say, John hears them say, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Why is this so? This unified voice says, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Evidently, a part of Christ bringing the power and the authority and the kingdom of God to the earth involves this prior step of throwing Satan out of heaven and limiting the scope of his activity to only earth. Once this casting down has happened, the saints in heaven now see That the final victory of Christ is so inevitable that it is as good as done. When these saints, speaking with a loud voice, describe Satan as the accuser of the brethren, a good question to ask is who are the brethren that they are speaking about here? And in this context, it's probably Israelites who are believing in Christ during the tribulation period. Perhaps part of Satan's war in heaven was an effort to accuse these Israelite saints before God in order to persuade him to abandon his people. To abandon the elect among the people of Israel whom God had saved so that Satan could then have them and have his way with them. As for how often Satan engages in this activity of accusing these brethren, the speakers here describe Satan as he who accuses them before our God day and night. In other words, all the time. And given the fact that we see Satan doing the same thing in Job 1 and 2 back in the Old Testament, given the language that is used here in this verse, we can be sure that Satan is doing this very thing even right now, accusing you who know Christ before God, trying to get God, to persuade God to agree with his accusations and to be done with you. We could be thankful that we have Christ as our advocate who's always in the presence of God, who shed his blood for us and who stands in the presence of God always interceding for us and being our advocate. He is our salvation. Not just on the day of our conversion, but every time Satan accuses us before the Father in heaven and Christ steps forward as our advocate, he is in that moment our salvation in ways we can't even fully comprehend. As for how these tribulation saints that Satan accuses overcome Satan. This unified voice in heaven continues and says, look at verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. How did these Jewish saints who are now in heaven overcome Satan? They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. That was shed for them by Jesus at the cross. And guys, that's the only way any of us will ever be able to overcome. is through Jesus and his blood that was shed for us at the cross. The blood of the lamb shed for them at the cross was the answer to every charge that Satan made against them as he accused them before God. These saints also overcame him because of the word of their testimony. And the word of their testimony is the gospel. It was through the gospel and through faith in the gospel. And by remaining true to that gospel that they overcame. They also overcame because the text says they did not love their life even when faced with death. They were willing to die for the one who had died for them. They loved Jesus more than they loved their own lives. And for all of these reasons they overcame. And because Satan and his angels are now cast down to earth and because those he tried to overcome have overcome him and because there is now never to be a place in heaven again for Satan to show his ugly face, this unified voice of the saints in heaven says, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. They enjoy heaven all the more in this moment, knowing that Satan will never appear again. In our present time, heaven is indeed a wonderful place, but it will be even more wonderful in this future day when Satan is cast out of heaven once and for all, never to appear and never to accuse believers ever again. This is why heaven is being told to rejoice in this moment, but... What is true for heaven is not true for earth, right? I mean, poor earth. Listen to what this voice says in the latter part of verse 12. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. It's great for heaven that the devil is cast out, but... Earth is now really in for it. So we know that this second half of the tribulation period is the time in which God's wrath is going to be poured out upon the earth in unprecedented ways. At the same time, we now learn that the devil himself is angry and full of great wrath, the text says. Which means that the people living on the earth during this time are going to get a double whammy of wrath. God's wrath and Satan's wrath in the final three and a half years prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Add to Satan's wrath over his defeat in this heavenly war how frantic and angry he must be in knowing how short of a time he has left, and you have a very scary situation. The inhabitants of the earth are in For the craziest three and a half years in world history. As for what Satan will do once he is cast down to earth, we learn here that he will not simply make life difficult for all the inhabitants of the earth in general, but he will focus his wrathful attention on the people of Israel. And this brings us to the final development in this story of the war that rages between God and his Messiah. Number five... Satan persecutes Israel, who is protected for three and a half years. Satan persecutes Israel, who is protected for three and a half years. Observe what John says in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Again, who is this woman? It's Israel. Where is she right now? Well, she's in the wilderness being protected and nourished by God for 1,260 days. However, even though she is being sustained by God during this time, Satan is persecuting her. And the word that is translated persecute here means literally to chase, to pursue with the intent to harm And that's what Satan is doing right now, pursuing Israel with the intention of destroying her. Speaking about this time period, in Daniel chapter 12, in verse 1, Daniel says, There will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. This persecution will be awful, this relentless pursuit of Satan of God's people will be relentless as terrible as this persecution is though God preserves Israel from Satan's efforts in verse 14 John says but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent you might want to jot down exodus nineteen four, where god speaks to the israelites and says you yourself have seen what i did to the egyptians and how i bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself and just as god rescued the israelites from the egyptians and brought them through the wilderness to himself so he will do the same thing here as it's described in Revelation 12. And while Israel is hidden out in the wilderness, we're told here in verse 14 that she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And we all read that and ask, what is a time and times and half a time, right? In fact, parents, if your children are ever impatient... Wanting something right away, just say, wait a time and times and half a time. (laughs) So what does this expression mean? Well, it's actually not that difficult. Think about it. We're already told in verse 6 in a parallel statement that this woman will be nourished by God for 1,260 days, right? And that is 42 months. That is three and a half years. Exactly, three and a half years. So what is a time and times and half a time? Well, a time is one year and times, plural, is two years, which now totals three. And then half a time is half of a year, which now totals three and a half years. So a time and times and half a time is simply another way of saying 1,260 days. You'll be interested to know that Daniel uses this exact expression twice in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, verse 25, we are told that the Antichrist will wear down the saints of the highest one for a time, times, and half a time. And in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, this time, times, and half a time is described as a time of shattering the power of the holy people. This is a terrible time, but Israel will be protected and nourished by God from the devices of the dragon. Looking back at our text here in Revelation 12, it seems that Satan figures out where Israel is hidden during this time, tries to destroy her. Observe what John says in verse 15. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. Now remember, these are pictures here. These are signs. So, We can or we may not take these literally. The river here could symbolize the armies of the Antichrist that are pursuing Israel, but it's also possible that this is literal water that is being spoken of. Just like in our mountainous areas here in California, uh, the wilderness areas in this part of the world over in Israel go many months without Rain, but then there are times of the year when the rains come and flash flooding can occur in certain areas. And perhaps that's what's being alluded to here, where Satan is trying to send a flash flood directly in the path of where these people of Israel are hiding and being protected and nourished by God. But we're told, whatever this is, we're told in verse 16 that God protects Israel. Observe, Verse 16, the text says, but the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. If these are the armies of the Antichrist pursuing the people of Israel, perhaps John is observing that an earthquake occurs that opens up the earth and swallows them all. That kind of thing happens in the Old Testament. Or perhaps this language Represents the fact that the armies of the Antichrist keep encountering natural difficulties in the wilderness that keeps them from getting to the Israelites. If this is some kind of literal flood that is heading toward the people of Israel, it seems that some kind of earthquake occurs that opens up the earth in such a way that all the water now drains down into the earth, thus sparing the people of Israel." Whatever is being described here, what is clear is that God is faithful to protect his people. And while we would rejoice in that, Satan is none too happy about this. Look at verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, the dragon was enraged with Israel, the people of Israel especially the faithful remnant of Israel, and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who are the rest of this woman's children? It would certainly include other Jews and other parts of the world who have believed in Jesus, but it might even perhaps include Gentiles who have experienced salvation through this one who was born of Israel. Whoever these children of the woman are, John describes them as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. These are the ones who are the special objects of Satan's wrath during the latter half of the tribulation period, and he will go after them in a frenzy of rage. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Revelation 12. And I did not see any children fleeing. And I guess that's a good thing. There's a lot for us to observe and ponder from this chapter that we've just read through. But let me, let me share just a few thoughts. In the first place, we see God's faithfulness to the people of Israel, right? Right? And as believers in the church age, we cherish that. Throughout the Old Testament, God promised the people of Israel that he will be forever faithful to them, though the people of Israel were not faithful to him. And we see God being faithful to his promises all the way to the end of the tribulation period, all the way to the second coming of Christ. And his faithfulness to his promises to the people of Israel, assures us that he will be faithful to every promise that he makes to us. Amen? God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. On another front, while it is true that those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus are objects of Satan's wrath during the second half of the tribulation period... As we've seen here in Revelation 12, we all know that this is true even today, right? That Satan is wrathful against those who believe in Christ, who hold to the testimony of Jesus, who keep the commandments of God and cherish those commandments. And we should never be surprised to see evidence of Satan's wrath directed against us. If Satan hates Jesus Christ with a passion, and he does, he will hate you, and he will hate me, and he will show his wrath against us and everything that we stand for, and we should expect this and be prepared for it whenever it occurs. One of the ways that Satan wages war against us is by accusing us before God night and day. And I just, I would just wither in my soul if I could hear those accusations, especially knowing that most all of them are true. It's a mercy that we're protected from those accusations of the evil one against us in God's presence. And I'm so thankful we have Christ as our advocate who speaks up for us in those moments of accusation. Satan accuses us before God night and day, but Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he also accuses us before men, too. 36 years ago, 36 years ago, Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on this very passage in Revelation, warns us, and I quote, that one of Satan's strategies is to lie about the church. He deceives the nations into thinking that the people of God are dangerous, deluded, and even destructive. 36 years ago. Is that happening today? Absolutely. Some of you have been following the NCAA men's basketball tournament, uh, often referred to as March Madness, and part of the madness of this year's tournament has been the story of Oral Roberts uh, University's basketball team, which surprised everyone by making it into the Sweet 16. Unfortunately, they lost yesterday. Uh, And I I haven't watched any of the games, but I watched that one because I was excited to see them do well. When they missed the final shot of the game, I yelled so loud that my dog scurried from the room. (laughs) And I had to go after him to say, it's okay, I'm not mad at you. Uh, But Oral Roberts University's basketball team surprised everyone by making it to the Sweet 16. Uh, And people love Cinderella stories, and so a lot of people were excited to see this small school do so well. But there were some people that were not happy about it at all. In fact, they were seething. In an opinion piece for USA Today, uh, a writer wrote an article saying that Oral Roberts University's success in the NCAA tournament is not the feel-good March Madness story that we need right now. Why? Well, because in her mind, there's something really, really awful about Oral Roberts University, and she takes it upon herself in this article to Educate the world about this awful thing about this school and prepare yourself, guys, for the shock of what I'm going to read to you from her. With breathless outrage, he says, and I quote, as part of their honor code, the university requires students to abide by a pledge saying that they will not engage in homosexual activity and that they will not be united in marriage other than the marriage between one man and one woman. Oh, the horror. She continues that Oral Roberts University wants to keep its students tied to toxic notions of fundamentalism that fetishize chastity Abstinence and absurd hymn lines is a larger cultural issue that can be debated. What is not up for debate, however, is their anti-LGBTQ plus stance, which is nothing short of discriminatory and should be expressly condemned by the NCAA. Any and all anti-LGBTQ plus language in any school's policies should ban them from NCAA competition. However accomplished, she says, its young student athletes are, Oral Roberts University is a hotbed of institutional transphobia, homophobia, with regressive sexist policies. There is no way to separate their men's basketball team from the dangers of their religious dogma, no matter how many top seeds they defeat. Whatever the Oral Roberts men's basketball team manages to do on the court cannot obscure the dangerous and hateful ideology of its core institution. Unquote. This writer's opinion is out there and it's growing and it's coming to our doorstep. And when it does come to our doorstep. Will we stand fast in the face of Satan's rage against us? Will we love Christ more than we love our own lives? Will we love Christ more than we love our own jobs? Some of you have already had to deal with this. It's already come to your doorstep in the workplace. Will we love Christ more Than the world's esteem? Will we cherish his commandments and still keep them when the world says those commandments are actually evil? Will we love Christ more than the right to play in the NCAA tournament? This writer for USA Today views Oral Roberts University's policies on sexuality as regressive. That's the word she uses. But actually, the part of their policy that she's taking issue with is ahead of its time. For it is consistent with God's eternal word. And it will be the reigning policy in Christ's future kingdom. Long after the NCAA and every other human institution has been cast aside and forgotten. And as believers in the church, we cannot forget this. As believers in Jesus, we are on the winning side. We are on the right side of history. Let Satan and his minions rage all they want against us. In the days to come, they will try to wear us down with their accusations, but let us remain steadfast and act like we actually know something, and that is that Christ will win in the end. And that the day is coming when the saints of the Most High God will reign with him forever and ever. Amen. And in the meantime, guys, let's love one another. And be careful how we speak about one another. I can't think of a time in my lifetime when it's more important that we as a church show to the world what genuine unity looks like. And yet, I don't recall a time in my own lifetime when it has been more difficult to maintain that unity. These are challenging times for us as believers in the church. And we need to be careful to love one another and be careful in how we speak to and about one another. I'm amazed lately how freely Christians can hurl Accusations against one another and do Satan's dirty work for him. You, as a Christian, are never more like Satan than when you utter a carelessly worded and cynical accusation against another brother or sister in Christ. So be very, very careful. As we learn in this passage, Satan is the accuser of the brethren that job is already taken, find something else to do with your time and leave that filthy work to him. Appreciate the fact that Satan is accusing you before God all the time with accusations that are often largely true. Yet you have an advocate in Jesus who is in the presence of the Father who died on the cross for you so that you can have atonement For any sin that Satan might rightly accuse you of, let the mercy that you are daily receiving move you to be merciful and charitable towards your brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can stay unified in these dark and difficult days. And let's not forget that Satan is our enemy, not each other. And if you are here today and you... In listening to this message, realize that you need an advocate who can plead for you now, but also on Judgment Day. You've got one, and his name is Jesus Christ, if you would receive him. Cry out to Jesus. Trust me, you're going to need an advocate on Judgment Day to plead your case. An advocate who died and shed his blood to give you atonement for every sin. You're going to need that advocate, and he offers himself to you right now, even in this moment. Call upon his name, believe in him, and he will rejoice to be your advocate now, beginning today, all the way to judgment day, and throughout eternity. What a great Savior he is, and we're so blessed to have the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and our King. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, for the perspective that it gives to us, that braces us for times we find ourselves in right now and also uh, days that lie ahead of us. Help us not to be faint of heart. Help us to be men and women who are willing to fight, but who are also wise in choosing the hills we're going to die on. And we also are wise in knowing who we're fighting, that we're not fighting each other, but it's you that we fight for and it's Satan that we fight against. We thank you above all for the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands as our advocate in your presence even now and who one day is going to return and establish his kingdom upon the earth, and we will reign for him forever and ever, living in an existence completely free of sin, filled with righteousness. Help us not to get caught up and seeing only what is here and now. We must face the present, but may we always have one eye on this future that the Apostle John is giving to us so that we then can see the present from that perspective and then lean into that, move into the present with full engagement and with confidence knowing that the outcome is sure. And you are good. You are a good God to give us this wisdom, Lord. We thank you for it. We receive it and ask you to help us to live in the good of this wisdom in the days of the week ahead. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,